when we sing a song like I am bound to the promised land we are engaging in a discipline of preaching and teaching to ourselves that which we know to be true but we struggle with these truths especially in the midst of crisis so by God's grace we'll see what David did not do well in chapter 27 of 1 Samuel and our calling to that as God's people. As a, uh, as a Reformed Southern Baptist Church, we hold to certain biblical tenets that establish who we are as a people according to the Word of God. We believe certain things to be true. We believe that, that man is inherently depraved, that our hearts are, are wicked through and through. We believe that that God elects people and saves people without condition, that he does this great work in us. We believe in the limited atonement of Jesus Christ. We believe that God's grace is irresistible. We believe that if God has saved you, that you will persevere to the end by his grace and by his power. And these are fundamental truths that we take into our life in Christ. We believe in grace alone. We believe in scripture alone. We believe in faith alone. And when we take all these truths together, we need to hear a chapter like 1 Samuel 27 and not forsake the very things the Bible teaches when it comes to the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, and being saved by God's grace in Christ. And unfortunately, what we do is we read, we read a chapter like this, as we will see today, and, and we forsake some of these basic biblical truths. Uh, an example would be in the life of David. In chapter 24, we saw David as a great man of God who has the opportunity to kill King Saul in the cave. And instead of doing that, he restrain, God restrains his hand and then David restrains the hands of his own men from taking Saul's life. And, and we love this faith. And then we get to chapter 25, as we saw last week. And we hate what David's going to do. He grabs his sword and he tells his men to grab their sword. They're going to go kill Nabal and every male in his house. We hate it. And then we get to chapter 26. And again, David has the opportunity to take the life of King Saul. And he tells, he tells his servant, Abishai, he says, no, we're not going to kill him because this is God's doing. It'll be God's will. And we love David again. And then we get to chapter 27. And our heart grows cold towards David again as he says and does and behaves in ways that are most disturbing not only for the people of God, but for people in general as we were created to live. We see, we'll see him today deceptively and ruthlessly following his own plan of salvation. And we may begin to say to ourselves, there's no way this man knows God. There's no way this man is a, God, a man after God's own heart. We may begin to say to ourselves that his lack of submission, his lying, his deceitfulness, his flagrant use of the sword, his bloodshed must mean that he is not saved. And do you see what we've done? We've already forsaken the very biblical truth upon which we want to read chapter 27. You can't say that David is saved in chapter 24, unsaved in 25, saved in 26, unsaved in 27. You can't do that. He's either saved by God's grace or he's not. And if he's saved by God's grace in 24, then guess what? He's saved for the rest of the storyline. Even in the midst of the evil that we see him do. Even if David does not submit to God, even if David pursues his own salvation, it does not mean that God has rejected him. In other words, our theology has to be consistent for all people in all places at all times, including David. We must not say, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We cannot say that on one hand and then condemn David for his evil actions or exalt him for his good actions. I would hazard to guess good thing I don't, that most Christians in the Western world would not allow David to become a member of their church. I don't think they would. 
I would hazard to guess that most Christians in the Western church would say that David is not saved. But that's not based upon biblical truth. That's based upon us saying, well, we're going to look at what you did, and based upon your actions, good or bad, we will then determine whether or not you're saved or unsaved. That's not what the Bible teaches. We're saved by God's grace through faith in Christ alone. So let us now look closely at chapter 27, holding fast to grace alone, faith alone, scripture alone, holding fast to those, and let's look at David. And I want to look at four things. One, how sin begets more sin. Unconfessed sin begets more sin. Number two, how we ought to preach to ourselves. Number three, the way of wisdom. If you're like me, you want to hear that point because I'm not that wise. And number four, how more grace is needed. How sin begets more sin, how we need to preach to ourselves the way of wisdom, and how more grace is needed. Point number one, how sin begets more sin. Chapter 27 is a relatively short chapter, and and many of the commentators looked at it as a transitional chapter um, in the life of David. One commentator called it the godless chapter. In, In chapter 27, God is not mentioned His views are not expressed. His actions remain hidden. Uh, Dale Davis writes, he said, God offers no moral commentary on the events in chapter 27. And godless may be an appropriate subtitle, given what David does from beginning to end in chapter 27. We begin the story, we pick it up, I should say, again with David. He's out in the wilderness with his 600 men. He's still fleeing from the spear of Saul. He's tired, he's weary. And begin with me in chapter 27, verse 1. David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over he and the 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. So David was in his mind working through this scenario and he thought to himself, I'm out of options. If I stay here in Israel, Saul will kill me. The kingdom will be lost. And so he flees to the Philistines. The enemies of God's people. He flees to Gath and he submits himself to King Achish. When he gets there, when he gets to the city of Gath, he doesn't want to stay in the city. He doesn't want to be under the surveillance of the king. And so he asks the king for an outlying territory. He says, King, I want somewhere else to go with my men. King Achish says, go to Ziklag. So he goes to Ziklag and he establishes essentially for 16 months, a year and four months, the scriptures tell us. He and his men live there serving as mercenaries of this Philistine king. Now, Achish could not have been more pleased to have the mighty David and to have David's men in his camp serving him, fighting against King Saul in Israel. I mean, this was was too good to be true for the king of Gath. We find David in that 16-month period building his wealth, supporting his men and their families. He carries out a series of attacks on the nearby people. Look at verse 8. David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, raiding other communities. Raiding communities that time was not uncommon. We even saw when David went to rescue uh, a couple weeks back, when he went to rescue um, from the Philistines actually taking the grain from the grain field. So it wasn't uncommon. But what David does, he goes one step further. Look with me at verse 9. David would strike the land... And he would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. Now, the Bible-believing Christian will quickly try and justify David's actions by saying something like, they were enemies of Israel, and therefore his actions are just. But the word of God will not let us off so easy. We never need to defend sinful actions, saints. In the book of Exodus... God called the Israelites to drive out the inhabitants of the promised land. Now listen closely. He did not call them to systematically kill every man, woman, and child outside of the promised land. Exodus chapter 23, verse 31. 
God said, I will establish your borders from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the desert to the river. I will hand over to you the people who live in the land and you will drive them out before you. Nowhere does God call David or give David permission to use his mighty men to systematically attack and decimate the cultures and the people surrounding Israel. Now, some of you would say, wait a minute, David was under extreme duress without question, and we must be sympathetic to his plight. In Israel, he was under the hand of Saul, and he was being pursued. His men were hungry, and they were tired. And so, we can understand him fleeing to Philistia and coming under King Achish. But being sympathetic to David does not give us the right to justify David's actions. It doesn't give us the right to justify anybody's sinful action. David was not engaged in some holy war for his people. He was not engaged in war to defend the name of God. He had not been commanded by God as Saul was in 1 Samuel 15 to go to the Amalekites and kill. He he didn't receive that command. He was exercising his power as he saw fit because his plan of salvation had changed. In fact, the narrator tells us something utterly grievous that David engaged in the genocide of those he attacked to cover his own tracks. Look at verse 10. I'm not making this up, by the way. When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say against the Negev of Judah or against the Negev of the Jeremelites or against the Negev of the Canaanites. Either his people, Israel, Judah, or all those who were friendly with Judah. He was lying to Achish. Verse 11, said David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. In other words, David was trying to deceive Achish into thinking, as Achish would say, that he's become a stench to his own people. When in reality, he was out raiding those other than his own people or those who were friendly with Judah. And he caused Achish to think that David indeed was against Israel and against his own people. In other words, the butchery that David exercised was not ordered by God for the preservation of his people or God's name. It was used to keep Achish in the dark. He did not want anyone testifying to the king of what he had actually done. And so he killed them, every last one, man, woman, and child. So fooled does David have Achish. We're told in verse 12, look, Achish Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. He had completely duped Achish. In fact, it goes even further in verse 1 of chapter 28. Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out to war with me and my army to fight against Israel. Such a tangled web that David had weaved. The deception, the lying, the murder, and now he's on the verge of going to war against his own people, against God's people. So his lack of trust in God he fled Israel to the Philistines. He came into the, uh, under the reign of the king of Gath, King Achish. He gets his own town, Ziklag. He begins to raid the surrounding people, taking all their possessions, killing them systematically. He dupes through lying and deception, King Achish. And now he finds himself and his men being called to go to war against God's own people. It's an absolute mess. David's sin begat more sin, which begat more sin. And it all started with a crisis of faith, not trusting in God. And this is the path of sin, not just David's, ours as well. Sin that is unconfessed, sin that is not repented over, it leads to more sin, and we can testify it usually leads to greater sin. We now know that most men... Most men who end up cheating on their wives find themselves bound by smaller sins prior to the consummation of adultery. Unresolved struggles in the marriage, 
breakdown in communication, online pornography, this flirtation at work or in the neighborhood, inappropriate dialogues begin, joking begins online, at work, in the neighborhood. Married couples, instead of spending time together, members of the opposite sex spending time one-on-one. leads to inappropriate dialogue, inappropriate touching, and eventually culminates in the act of adultery. Sin begetting more sin begetting more sin. David's lack of faith led him to seek refuge with God's enemies. It led to lying. It led to bloodshed. And it led to the point where he was at the door of treason against God's people. James tells us this. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. James says, Each one... Each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to what? To death. To death. Now some will protest and say, but this is David. This is our beloved David. This is a man after God's own heart. How could this happen? How could this happen to David? And if this could happen to David, certainly it could happen to us. How do we make sure we don't go down that path? Second point, you ready? Are you still with me? Okay. Preaching to yourself. I want you to notice something. First, I want us to not forget that David falls under that category of all people whose heart is deceitfully wicked. And they said, we shouldn't be shocked. David is a sinner. And we shouldn't be shocked by his actions. In fact, I would argue we shouldn't be shocked by any of our actions. But secondly, I want you to look at this. At the onset of the chapter, David, he has a a faith crisis. There's a fracture in his faith. Look at verse 1 again. David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. This is a complete reversal of what he had said to Abishai in the previous chapter regarding the death of Saul. In fact, the same word is used. He's talking about the fact that he will perish. The same word in the Hebrew, it's Shaphah, he's talking about in the context of Saul in the previous chapter, saying to Abishai, God will take care of that. He'll either die of natural causes, he'll die in war. Contrary to God's faithfulness in protecting and delivering David, on multiple occasions, contrary to the word of God that was spoken to David by Samuel and Jonathan and Abigail and even Saul. Even Saul said in chapter 24, verse 20, Behold, he says to David, Behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Contrary to all this truth, David had convinced himself that unless he took immediate action, got out of Israel, fled to the Philistines... Unless he did this, he would be killed and the kingdom would be compromised. It's a faith crisis. It's a faith crisis. And David was preaching to himself. He was preaching lies to himself. What should he have been preaching? What should David have been saying to himself that would have compelled him not to leave Israel, not to flee to the Philistines, not to come under King Achish? What would have compelled him The answer again is in verse 1. Look again. David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. Do you see what he's doing? David is speaking to his own heart. What does that mean? He's talking to himself. He's preaching to himself. And we do this all the time. Everybody is in a constant mode of self-proclamation and preaching to themselves, to their own hearts. Everybody. You're always telling yourself something. Sometimes some of you do it audibly. You you don't even know you're doing it. You're walking around saying, I'm okay, no, I'm okay. Well, who are you talking to? I guess myself. We're always talking to ourselves, always reminding ourselves of things, always preaching something to ourselves. And what you preach to yourself on a daily basis will move you in the path that you'll take. You know, most of you know that I taught in the public schools for years, and I had several young ladies who would get pregnant out of wedlock. And they'd find themselves in a most difficult situation. They thought, well, this is their preaching to themselves more often than not. I can't have this baby. 
because I'll have to drop out of school. My boyfriend will leave me. My parents will be disappointed. I can't support the child. And then they would get much counsel from counselors to the easy option, the quick option to get on with your life is to have an abortion. This is regular dialogue. It's not infrequent in my time of teaching. And they would hear this from their parents. They would hear it from teachers. They would hear it from friends. And then they would say it to themselves, I have no way out. I don't want to drop out of school. I don't want to disappoint my parents. I don't have the financial means. And they would, they would find themselves in that box of abortion. And they would go and they would have an abortion. And so the sin of, of premarital sex that would beget child beget the abortion which begets murder and it just moves in that direction they would preach themselves many right into an abortion clinic right into it what you say to your heart especially in the midst of crisis will determine the path that you take David had convinced himself his only option was to flee to get out of Israel he had convinced himself that he should go to flee to Achish. And the problem, saints, wasn't that he was talking to himself. The problem is what he was saying to himself. Look again at verse 1. He says, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. David took lies and he preached those to his own heart. And then he moved. What should he have been doing? Should he have stopped preaching? No. He should have been preaching truth. He should have been preaching God's word. He should have been preaching to himself. He should have have been remembering when God delivered him again and again from the lion and the bear. He should have been preaching to himself that great day when he went out before the Philistines and he, by God's grace, took down the giant Goliath. He should have been preaching to himself what Samuel did to him at his father's house in Bethlehem when he was anointed to be king. Of all the brothers, he was the one that was anointed. He should have been telling himself that. He should have heard. He should have heard Jonathan's words. In 1 Samuel 23, 17, Jonathan said to him, Don't be afraid. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel. He should have been preaching that to himself. He should have been preaching what Abigail said in 25, verses 28 and 29. Abigail said, For God will certainly make you a sure house, and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. In other words, David had experience. He had the word of God. He had testimony that he should have been telling himself. All those would have made great sermons for David. But instead he told himself lies. Saints, the same holds true for us. What you preach to yourself on a daily basis... What you say to your inner ear, to your heart, will determine the path that you take. You will either move further into the kingdom of God, or you too will flee to Philistia. You will draw near to the Savior, or draw near to an idol. You'll either come under the living God, the true king, or under a false king like Achish. The sage was wise in Proverbs 4 when he said this. Listen, this is Proverbs 4, verses 20 through 24 listen to the sage my son be attentive to my words incline your ear to my sayings let them not escape from your sight keep them within your heart for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you saints how frequently do we do that How often do we take the word of God and have that preached to us on a daily basis? We have the word of God speak to our heart instead of the crooked speech and the devious talk of the world and the culture. The word of God is intended to feed us, to nourish us, to preach to us. If this is the only time you receive a sermon, then you must have a very long week. If this is the only time you have someone preaching, it's a long seven days. When you're discouraged, those of you who are married, 
when you're discouraged and things are difficult, you can lie to yourself and say, this marriage is hopeless. You can lie to yourself and you can flee to the courts of divorce. Or you can hear the word of God who said, what I have brought together, let no man tear asunder and have God's word preached to you and stay the course and make it work. When you're frustrated at school, students, work, employees, and you find yourself slacking off or trying to escape because things aren't going your way, saying to yourself, well, you know, what do they care? They, they don't care if I stay or if I leave or how I do. Do you say that to yourself? Or do you have the word of God speak to you and say, whatever you do, Colossians 3.23, work it out with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for men. When life has taken one of those brutal turns, you know those turns, those ones where you round that corner and you say, really, this is what I got before me for the next several months or years? When your dreams and your expectations have been dashed to pieces, your plan for your life is not going as you want because we're not God? Do you preach to yourself this? Do you say, if God really cared about me, I wouldn't be in this mess. I wouldn't be heading in this direction. If God really loved me, then life would be different. Life would be better. Life would be as I planned it. Is that the lie that you preach to yourself? Or do you listen to the Proverbs say, the heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. It's God who determines the path. When you're downcast, do you do as the psalmist said in the 42nd Psalm and preach to yourself this? Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. The difference between a crisis of faith and walking in faith is what you're preaching. The difference between you fleeing to Philistia or pressing yourself deeper and deeper and deeper into the love of God. The difference between you coming under a foreign king who has no power to save you and coming under the true king who not only has the power but the desire to save and redeem you. The difference, saints, is you preaching on a daily basis to your hearts what is true, what is real, God's word. In our story, David spoke lies to his own heart and it led to sin that beget more sin. God calls you, he calls me, to speak the truth to ourselves and to one another on a daily basis. I desperately need you to speak God's word into my life. You need one another to speak God's word into your lives. You know, we are so blessed. We live in a time and we have technology that, you know, you can go every day. Every day you can listen to sermons. It's amazing. And, there, and there's so many good sermons out there. There are a lot of bad ones too, but there are many good ones. You can listen. You can have God's word preached to you. Every day you can open up the Bible and preach God's word to yourself. Every day you can hear him speak and have him direct your path and make it straight. Every day. And I will go one step further. Every day, if we're going to take Romans chapter 12 seriously, every day that you need to be transformed by the renewing of your mind or you will be conformed to this world and the path will be crooked. Every day. Speaking the truth to ourselves, speaking the truth to one another so that our hearts will not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin so that our path will not reflect that of David's in chapter 27. You don't read chapter 27 and say, that a boy, David. What a man of faith. You don't. It's grievous. It's grievous. So first, we've seen that sin begets more sin. Secondly, we've seen that preaching lies to ourselves rather than the truth of God moves to sin. So what is the wise alternative? I'm glad you asked. It's the way of wisdom. It is the way of wisdom. Proverbs 14, 12 says this. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. There's a way that seems right. We make decisions. We move in directions every day. And many of those ways seem right to us. But in the end, it leads to death. David, he thought long and hard before he left Israel. 
He looked at his circumstances. He looked at the number of times he barely missed death. And he said to himself, weary, tired, struggling. I need to care for my men and their families. He said to himself, I got to flee. I got to get out of here. My only hope, he said, is fleeing Israel. And the worst part is the plan actually seemed to work at first. Look at verse 4. David said, if I leave, then God will stop, Saul will stop following me. Verse 4, Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, and what? He no longer sought him. Maybe this plan's okay. He ends up in Ziklag. Lots of freedom, lots of security. Ends up convincing Achish that he was raiding his own people, becoming a stench to God's people. So much so, look at verses 1 and 2 in chapter 28. That the king came to him. Achish and the other Philistine kings are about to wage war on Israel. God saves him from this as well. We'll see that next week. We don't know that in our storyline yet, so stay here. Achish says to David, you and your men are going to go out with me in the army to battle against Israel. And David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. (laughs) David, the anointed of God, the servant of God, is going to be the bodyguard of a pagan king. This is a most desperate place. I mean, you talk about being on the horns of a dilemma. It was fascinating reading. The commentators were, it was hysterical. David has two choices, right? He has two choices in his mind. He either can not go into war and and then Achish would know that he's been duped and David and his men would have been in a most dangerous place. Or he could go and wage war against his own people, against God's people, against the very people God had anointed him to be king over. His future reign as king of Israel would certainly have been compromised. Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. Where do we find David? Death for him, death for his men, death for Israel. The choices are horrible. Biblical wisdom does not lead to death. Biblical wisdom appeals to life. It understands, listen saints, that our lives are taking place on a much grander stage with God as a sovereign director. And it involves a plot that is far more wonderful and far more deep than simply trying to get away from the King Saul's in our lives. The grand narrative of the redemption of mankind through Jesus Christ is not simply trying to be happy or get away from persecution or not struggle or to hide from Saul. That's not the plan. David's flight to Gath and now his potential war with his own people looms as a much greater threat than Saul ever had to his reign as king. When we're in crisis mode, now listen, because some of you are in significant crisis mode right now. When we're in crisis mode, when anxiety and stress are bearing down on us, when pain and suffering dominate the landscape, I mean, when you look out, that's what you see. It is oftentimes very difficult to see the way of wisdom and to move down that very narrow path that God has established for you and placed there for you. We often think just like David. We will say to ourselves, if I can just get away from Saul, if I can just just find a new place to live, a new job, a new ministry, a new church, new friends, new family, if I can just get away, you know, this is my problem, I can get away. we often will render our entire life down to a single issue. And we'll say, if I can overcome this one issue, then all will be well. Now, saints, that's a lie. That's a lie born by the culture. It's a lie straight out of hell. There is no single temporal answer to your crisis. Not one. That one thing in your life that you think, if I have this, all will be well, is a lie. And if you believe it and you preach it to yourself long enough, get out of Israel, flee to Gath, 
Get away from Saul. Be happy. If you preach it to yourself again and again and again, you'll find yourself down that path, but it will not lead to the cross and it will not lead to Christ. The way of wisdom is not escaping. The way of wisdom is not fleeing from difficulty. Biblical wisdom, biblical wisdom is hard. Biblical wisdom is knowing the right thing to do when the rules don't apply. David's sitting there and, 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 and he has to come to bear, come to um, understand his situation in light of all his circumstances and the word of God. Biblical wisdom is doing the right thing when the rules do apply. It's not, you can't, you can't become biblically wise by taking a course in wisdom. <laughs> You're not going to get it by taking a seminar, by reading a best-selling book, by submitting to a program, by taking a pill. There's no mystical formula. It's cultivated by taking one step after another, by knowing the word of God and submitting to it. It's, it's submitting to the Holy Spirit, which speaks to you directly through the word of God. It's experiencing life and, and, and reflecting upon the mistakes and by God's grace not making those mistakes again. I mean, fundamentally, biblical wisdom is about trusting in the Lord. It starts there, it ends there, it moves in the trust. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. The sage said, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. That's what David was leaning on his own understanding and not trusting in God. And then it said, in all your ways acknowledge him and what? He will make your path straight. Jesus said something very similar. It says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. David is a, a, a wonderful proof text for us. Look back at verse 1 again. David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Biblical wisdom refuses to do this. David's tired. David's weary. And he concludes he only has one choice. Did you see that? I'm going to perish. There is nothing better for me than I should escape. I got one choice. And that's it. And if I don't take this, I'm dead. Sounded like my unmarried pregnant students. I have one choice. It's abortion. If I don't have an abortion, my life ends. Worldly wisdom creates ultimatums. One choice that often leads to greater sin. David is not trusting the Lord with all his heart. He is leaning upon his own understanding. His understanding is limited and is horribly flawed. Rather than putting his faith in the Lord to save him as he had saved him a countless number of times before, he takes matters into his own hands and he attempts to save himself. He was not drawing upon the word of God. He was not drawing upon previous experiences. He wasn't hearing Abigail. He wasn't hearing Samuel. He wasn't hearing Jonathan. He wasn't hearing any of this. In that moment, David put himself in a box and he said, my only option is to flee, to get out. My beloved, listen closely. God is not limited by space or time. He has an infinite number of options for your crisis. And the beautiful thing is not one option that God sets before you, that he sets before you, will beget more sin. It may be difficult. Your flesh may hate it, especially in the short run. But God's options are not like man's options. Our options lead to more sin. God's options stop it and move us in the way of righteousness. Not compromise. Costly, painful, yes. But always better. Always better. Those of you who are a little bit older with some life experience, you know those choices that you've made that were not in alignment with God's word. And even though in that moment it seemed so reasonable, 
so wise. Afterwards, you look back and you realize, as David before Abigail, that he would have had blood on his hands. Psalm 86, verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord. He instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. Verse 10. That's extraordinary. The will of God for our lives includes so much more than just being happy. So much more than just escaping Saul and fleeing Israel minimizing our personal struggles. One author called this the if-only fallacy. I love it. Listen to what he writes. The if-only fallacy is this. If only this insoluble problem that is right now wrenching my heart, monopolizing my thinking, and consuming my energy, if only I could get relief from it, I would get, get on well with life. In David's mind, the greatest problem was Saul. And therefore, his only solution was getting away from Saul. But we know that David's greatest problem was not Saul. David's greatest problem was David. David's greatest problem was the sin in David's own heart. It was the inside that needed great work. It was his sin that posed his greatest threat to reigning as king over Israel and being a citizen in the kingdom of God. It wasn't Saul. It wasn't Doeg. It wasn't Nabal. It wasn't the Geshurites or the Gerzites or the Amalekites. The external enemy was not the problem of David. It was David that was the problem of David. They say, well, that's great. Then what do we do with that? If the problem is Saul, I flee from Saul. If the problem is the Amalekites, I kill the Amalekites. But the problem is within me. What do we do? Point number four. You ready? What does wisdom offer this to us? Grace, more grace, more grace is needed. How do you get through chapter 27 and not condemn condemn David? And in so doing, condemn yourself and forsaking what we established at the beginning, biblical truth. How can we walk in faith and not stumble and fall at every turn, having sin beget more sin, having our lack of faith lead to lying and lead to murder. How? How can can we become wise and not lean upon our own understanding? If our greatest problem is sin and not the souls in our lives, how are we to overcome this insurmountable problem You can't. God can. There was a man by the name of Agur, the son of Jacob, in the Old Testament. He was an Old Testament oracle. And he has to ask one of the most profound questions in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 30. He asked this question, same for us. He says, how... How do I walk this path? How do I live this life? How do I not have sin that begets sin? How do I not daily lie and daily steal and daily have a faith crisis and then commit? How is this possible? Listen to the question. You have an answer. Agua writes, he said, I am the most ignorant of men. I do not have a man's understanding. This is a sage, by the way, an oracle of God. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Who has gone up to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in the hollow of his hands? Who has wrapped up the waters in his cloak? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and the name of his son? Tell me if you know. What is his name? His name is Yahweh. Who is his son? It's Jesus Christ. The very question the sage wants to know is the question that we must know in order to not live this life of 1 Samuel 27 that David lived. Who is this God? It's the living God of the Holy Bible. Who is his son? It's Jesus Christ. From whom abundant grace flows. It was Jesus Christ who came from heaven to earth. It was Jesus Christ 
who lived a sinless life in our place and died a sinner's death in our place that we might be saved by his blood. It was Christ. He's the one that the sage is looking for. It's Jesus Christ who walked this life perfectly and then imputed his righteousness to us so that we won't stumble and fall at every single turn but grow daily in the grace and wisdom and knowledge of our Savior. How do you get through chapters 27 and not condemn David? Because when you condemn David, you condemn yourself. How? Your hope is in Christ. Your hope in your faithlessness, your hope in your lying, your hope in your deception, and your hope in your murder must be God's grace. Because you can't undo it. And you can't even stop it most of the time. But God's grace can. Through Christ, he can take the lying, he can take the deception, he can take the murder. Christ can take that and he will bear it in his own body upon the cross and then grant to you what? Instead, he'll grant you forgiveness, he'll grant you mercy, he'll grant you his grace, he'll grant you his righteousness. He'll take his crown and put it on your head. It's extraordinary. How can we prevent ourselves from living a life of sin that perpetuates more sin, that leads to more sin, that ultimately leads to death? By God's grace, the power of the Holy Spirit that he gives you, if you've been saved by grace, if you've repented of your sins, if you've surrendered your life to the Holy One, if you belong to Christ, I mean really belong to Christ, I'm not talking about going to a Christian church, if you belong to Jesus Christ, then he's imparted to you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit with his word equips you, empowers you to not have sin beget sin beget sin that leads to death. And we're going to see that next week. God saves David. How do you keep from lying to yourself? How do you keep from preaching lies to yourself? The Bible says, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Fix your eyes on Christ. See Christ, hear Christ, follow Christ. How do you become wise? Look to the wise one. God came down as a man and lived a life not only to die for our sins, not only to impart to us his righteousness, but so that we might see this wise life. Jesus Christ lived in complete loving submission to his Father. He died to himself, he died to his wants, he died to his own desires, and he lived for God. That's wisdom. That's wisdom. If our greatest problem is not Saul, if your greatest problem is not your marriage, your children, your income, your housing situation, if your greatest problem is not your work or your school, if your greatest problem is sin, then that problem must be dealt with. Peter, in his first public sermon, Acts chapter 2, verse 36 and following, listen to what he said. And then I'll close. Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? That is the question. For every single human being, what shall we do? Listen to Peter's reply. Verse 38, he says, Repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord, our God, will call. It's Jesus. It's knowing Christ. It's loving Christ. It's following Christ. It's not a religion. It's a relationship. It's not something you do. It's a person. It's him. And here's the great news of the gospel. Even when you make a mess, even when you flee Israel into the hands of the Philistines, 
even when you subject yourself to a foreign king and raid people and lie to people and murder people, even when you make this catastrophic mess in your life, if you're in Christ, he saves you from that. You can't go, I'll never be like David because we are like David. We're worse than David. And the great news of the gospel is that all who come to Christ, he will not lose one. Jesus said, all the Father has given me, I will not lose one. He is the good shepherd. He goes after the the one that was lost. That's why he came. That's why he died. And that's why he rose from the dead. To bring glory and honor to God the Father through the redemption of mankind. Saints, do not fool yourself and read 1 Samuel 27 and glorify David's actions. They are hideous. See how much David needs grace. See how much we need grace. And then by God's grace, let's live in accordance with it. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for condemning David for his actions and somehow attributing to him a life without you. I pray, Father, that you would make us wise. You would give us the desire each day to preach truth to ourselves and not lies. That we would faithfully desire to hear your word. We're so thankful, Lord, that you did the unthinkable by sending Christ to die for our sins and then give to us wretched sinners his righteousness I pray Father that we would see clearly the great hope that we have is not in the good that we do or the evil that we do not do the great hope that we have is in a crucified risen Savior that it is in Christ and how much more we need that grace being poured out in our lives Forgive us, Father, for putting ourselves in a box. For listening to the worldly wisdom that leads to more destruction and not hearing you and your word speak truth to us. I pray, Father, that as a church, we would desire to hear you, we would desire to understand you, and we would desire to submit to you out of love. I pray, Lord, you be gracious with us as we contemplate the great work of Christ on our behalf. Grow us, Lord, into a people that live lives in such a way that bring you honor and glory. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.